leading multi-platform storytelling. Welcome to another Story Labs podcast. For more info, go to storylabs.us. Uh, so, hello. Uh, you heard a bit about me yesterday when I was talking about making worlds and uh, reaching out to people beyond the screen and crossing that boundary between uh, passive entertainment and making something that really involves the audience in both senses. And that process of reaching out, of finding people beyond your primary platform and on other platforms, uh, is what I'm going to talk about now. Now, generally when I stand up in front of people, uh, especially when it's such an esteemed bunch of creative people and storytellers and people I really want to impress, uh, I talk about how brilliant I am and the wonderful projects I've worked on and how I did them all single-handedly and um, they've all been absolutely perfect and you should hire me now Um, but today I'm going to do something a bit different I'm going to tell you all about how shit I am Uh, or more specifically I'm going to be talking about how things have gone wrong with my world sometimes Uh, fundamental design problems uh, unforeseen cock-ups, stupid decisions, many of which are mine, not all of them, many which. Uh, So people say you learn from your mistakes, and if you can learn from other people's mistakes, that's even better. Uh, So this talk should be extremely informative, and hopefully by the end of it, I'll still have a career. Uh, Gary came up with this title of of creatively failing forwards, by the way, because it sounds a bit better than how shit I am. Uh, And this, this image is the only family-friendly picture that comes up on page one when you do a Google image search for the word fail. You you don't want to know what else was there. Uh, So I'm going to talk about two projects I produced so we can do a bit of a compare and contrast between them. Both of these are primarily games, but with a lot of storytelling in them, so I hope there will be things in it for for everyone here. Uh, The first one was called Z. Uh, which I produced for Sony PlayStation while working at a game studio called Endreams. And then there's Lewis Hamilton Secret Life, which I also made at Endreams, this time for Reebok. So I'll give you the wonderful, brilliant 10-minute overview of each of them before going back and pulling them apart and giving you all the dirt. So let's talk about Z. That's the Greek letter Z or Xi up there, depending where you're from, how you pronounce it. Um, Sony have created a virtual world called Home, which you can access through any PlayStation 3. Uh, Just making sure everybody's happy with the term virtual world. Anybody kind of unsure about what I mean? Kind of electronic 3D world that you can explore with your own avatar and interact with other people's avatars. And uh, so things like Second Life, World of Warcraft, and now. PlayStation Home. Uh, You get an apartment, you design your avatar, you can hang around with the avatars of your friends in the many public areas like the shopping mall and the bowling alley, and it's a big social space. But around two and a half years ago, when we started uh, looking at Home, there really wasn't much to do there. It's very big and beautiful, but completely vacant. And people would come in once and have a look around at this kind of very clean, blue sky, uh, Beverly Hills type environment and see absolutely no reason to come back. So our challenge was to be that reason to come back. 
like most websites or social networks. Sony just wanted to attract more people more of the time. And as part of that, and in addition to that, they wanted to build a sense of community uh, between the players, between real people, so they could actually make real friends and have something to talk about even outside of home. So we created Z, which I have kind of called a 21st century style soap opera in the sense that soap operas were originally produced in the 1950s to keep a large audience coming back to watch the adverts. And essentially, Z is an extension of that tradition. And just because you're creating something commercial doesn't mean it can't have real creative and and entertainment value. And I genuinely think that projects that are are branded and ad-funded, if you like, can stand alone as pieces of entertainment, possibly even works of art, uh, regardless of, of how they're funded. But unlike the old soaps as used a, a big wide range of different media simultaneously, not just home, but also uh, we took people out onto the wider web uh, in print publications, real world live events, and about an hour of video which we shot and, and uh, showed online. We updated the game, updated those websites, updated those uh, spaces in home every weekday for three months. And we did the whole thing in five different languages simultaneously. Uh, English, French, Italian, German, and Spanish. Because this was catering for Europe and North America only. There are different versions of home in Japan and Asia. I don't know if Australia counts as Asia or if they've wrapped it into Europe. Tony may know. Yeah. So, so you may have been able to see it here. Um, story in games is a big can of worms that I'm not going to open it up here. Um, Maybe in the Q&A afterwards, I'm hoping we'll have plenty of time to talk. Uh, and also, you know, we've got Matt sitting in the corner over there. It's, it's not easy talking about story and games in front of him. Um, but the soap opera parallel held true for, for Z in terms of story structure as well as, uh, as our objective of getting people to watch the ads. Um, the structure was, was very multi-character, multi-strand, sometimes dramatic, sometimes quite domestic. Uh, it used weekly cliffhangers to keep people coming back. There were different plot, plot lines coming to prominence at different times, different characters kind of getting their moment in the spotlight. Um, there was one core storyline, which I'll just summarise so that you, you have an idea of what it was all about. Um, we had a fictional heroine called Jess, who we said was one of the original developers of Home. And she suddenly went AWOL, leaving her, her colleagues, her own little team of developers, to figure out where she'd gone. And it was probably something to do with the side project that she'd mentioned called Z. And now she was on the run around the world, and that's about it in a nutshell. That's the setup. In terms of storyline, uh, one of the PlayStation magazines published a timeline of events once the game had finished. And uh, yeah, fans of the three-act structure may wish to look away now. Uh, it's, as you can tell, it was, it was not a simple three-act story. It was much more soap operatic in its structure and much more varied in pace. Um, and while this looks kind of all over the place, that's actually one of the beauties of doing a cr- cross-platform or transmedia production like this. You can surprise people. You can use different media and different platforms and unexpected twists to take people into new and interesting territory. And I'll run through a few examples of that in a minute. So, 
from the start, we knew that, that Z was a game. It was not, uh, not, not so much a story. It was definitely a game first. Endreams is a games company. Patrick, the guy who founded the place, has worked in games all his life. And my role uh, was to champion the storytelling side of things because uh, my background is rather different. And in every alternate reality game or sort of game of this type, there's a different balance of gameplay and story. And in this case... The game side definitely took precedence because it was for gamers, about gamers, it was a gamer's game. And I think if there is a good enough reason, a fun enough reason, uh, you do have to be open to stretching your story to accommodate a great moment of gameplay or a fantastic opportunity that, for, for people to have fun. So this was a game for gamers, but... It was an unusual game, and so we thought that most of the people who play first-person shooters on their PlayStation probably hadn't played anything like this before. Uh, so we needed it to be accessible. We needed it to explain itself and not be all zigzaggy and disorienting for the players who were following it along. So we created two types of challenges with kind of parallel scoring systems. There were Fragments, which were, if you like, easy, and butterflies, which were tougher to, to win. And you could also equate those to the, to the A-plot and the B-plot in a TV show. Fragments you got for completing mini-games, usually within home. Uh, they were very accessible, generally single-player, easy, close, and they were closely tied to the, to the main storyline. So... For the, for the game to move forward, it was necessary that people completed them. Uh, there were 24 of those, so that was two a week over the 12 weeks. The butterflies, those challenges were much more ambitious and difficult and interesting. They were, they were, they were challenges, and they were kind of optional, uh, often meant people going offline to complete them, often collaborative, even multilingual uh, getting people to cooperate across languages. So there were, there were 20 of those. That's 44 puzzles in total, uh, many of which had little mini puzzles and levels within them. I'm not going to go through all 44, uh, so I've picked out three examples for brevity. We commissioned a song from a musician called Paul Ballard, who is big in Japan, with, uh, there was a puzzle in the lyrics. And this video was playing on a loop in Jesse's abandoned apartment in home. And the song has a kind of Romeo and Juliet theme and talks about looking out over the balcony. And if the players went to the balcony of her apartment, they would see a yacht that would sail past every 10 minutes or so. And on the side of that yacht was the name Capulet. And that was kind of the, the solution to this puzzle. So it was kind of a simple logic puzzle. They knew they were looking for a name. And it was hidden in the song. Another example, uh, we created these mazes within Home. I mean, Home is quite a... It's not really designed as a games platform. It's just a sort of social space. It's a place where you can build rooms. Um, but we created mazes with walls that would dynamically move up and drop down around you. So as you got close, a wall would come up in front of you so you could never see the whole maze. It just looked like an empty room except for the walls that were very close to you. And... Yeah, it's a kind of virtual, virtual version of The Shining, which, which comes to mind for some reason here. Um, there were obstacles and hazards too, so we had sort of, uh, skulls floating around that, that could uh, send you back to the beginning and sort of 
dance challenges. Dancing is one of the few things you can do in home. Uh, so, you know, if you danced with some of your fellow players, you could unlock doors and make your way through the maze. So that was quite a neat example of messing with some pretty basic features in home and turning it into a game. Um, this one I really liked. This was a, a video that we posted of Jess. There she is. Uh, delivering a message in a fairly recognisable location in London. And behind her, at the end, was a billboard with two letters on it. And at the end of that video, we flashed up a series of very quick clues to other geographic locations in Europe. And the players realised pretty quickly that there would be other billboards in these locations if they could find them. And there were in, in Birmingham and Rome and Milan and Madrid and Barcelona and Berlin and Frankfurt. We had eight different billboards, all with different letters on, and they formed a giant anagram. This was definitely a butterfly puzzle. You know, this, this took a lot of collaboration. And there was a bit of a frenzy on the online forums and across countries and across languages as people went out to find the billboard nearest them and were kind of egging on the guys in Frankfurt to get off their asses and go and find this billboard. And they solved it collectively within eight hours, which was, which was pretty good going. Um, but what I love about this puzzle is the community spirit it created and the connections it created between players of a game in completely different countries who otherwise would have had no reason to talk to each other. And the sense of achievement the players felt afterwards, sort of completing this tricky logistical puzzle was it was really satisfying for them and really satisfying for, for me as well kind of watching it happen so how did we do um, like I say this is, this is the glossy happy version so um, a few provisos to consider uh, we had no above the line advertising no kind of real adverts uh, we didn't have a budget we didn't have a PR firm or anything so we handled most of the PR ourselves I was writing a lot of press releases um, and considering the whole game was made by a core team of six people, there was only so much promotion we could do, and we just didn't have the manpower. Also, there were no prizes, so no kind of big cash jackpot to grab the headlines or, or lure people through the door. And the fact that they got picked up by so many magazines and websites is, is an indication that word of mouth kind of worked pretty well in our favour. Also, there was a naturally high barrier to entry. I mean, you the game was free to play if you had a PlayStation. Uh, you, you know, PS3s cost a few quid. So that automatically limited our audience, but it, it focused it too. So the main aim was to increase traffic to home. Uh, over the three months of the game, uh, we can't take full credit for this, but the number of people using home went up from 5 million to 7 million. Uh, our central home space, which was known as the hub, had four and a half million visits in those 12 weeks. And then we had a dozen spaces as well, like 11 more on top of that. Uh, once the game ended, we made a slightly revised version of the hub that was kind of less dynamic and more static. And even then, we got another half a million visits, people just dropping in over the following three months. So... The grand total was 5 million visits in six months, which is about the same number as the Great Wall of China has over the same period. So that's your, your factoid of the day. Uh, anecdotally, players said they went from visiting home maybe once a month to spending 40 hours a week in there, which that's only the most dedicated players, of course, but that's, that's a full working week for 12 weeks. Fully immersed. I mean, advertisers pay a fortune to get somebody's attention for 30 seconds on TV, and we grabbed hundreds of hours of people's time. 
So around half a million unique PS3s signed on to play Z. That's half a million machines, and we know that more than one person was playing on each machine, so we've kind of estimated it as being about 620,000 unique players over those three months. Uh, the community was extremely active. Uh, on the wider web, Sony provided us with moderated online forums in Europe and North America uh, with the different languages. So there were six forums in total because there were two for English, one European English and one American English. I like that distinction. Um, and those forums, uh, the dedicated ones, just about Z, had 18 million views over those three months and tens of thousands of posts. There were hundreds of videos posted on YouTube by players uh, without us prompting them, uh, just doing walkthroughs and things, and dozens of new fan sites and blogs that sprung up around the game and now continue to exist and just talk about anything that's going on in home. So we've kind of removed the scaffolding, but the community is still there, and it's, it's a home community. And Sony were pretty happy with all that. So... That's the marvellous promotional version of Z. Everything was great. It was unalloyed joy every step of the way. Everybody's happy. We'll we'll be coming back to that. Um, So now I'll just give you, and again, the the quick glossy overview of Lewis Hamilton's secret life. For those of you who don't know, Lewis Hamilton is a British Formula One racing driver, uh, former world champion with a team called McLaren, Uh, Also notable as the first black driver in Formula One and for being called a hoon by an Australian magistrate last year when he was driving around like a nutter in Adelaide. He's he's a bit of a boy racer. Uh, For me, this is probably the closest I'll ever get to writing and producing an action movie. Uh, Say what you like about Hollywood. I I grew up on this diet of high-octane silliness and and heist adventures and, and... Writing that kind of story, uh, even just as a straight screenplay, is, is pretty tough. Uh, you need really tight plotting and complex challenges and careful pacing and opportunities for excitement and danger and, and characters you really care about, even in really kind of daft popcorn blockbusters, you need to care about the hero. Um, so when this opportunity came about, it was, you know, I, was, I was quite tempted. Uh, but like most big opportunities, it wasn't without strings. It was actually just when we were coming to the end of, of running Z that Endreams was approached by a PR firm called MNC Saatchi, who asked if we could help a client with a problem. Uh, and the client was Reebok, and their problem was Lewis. Uh, they, they sponsor him as an athlete. So they use him to showcase their, their training kit and flog trainers. Uh, he's on a five-year deal, which starts in 2009. And that first year, they, they went into a lot of detail, publicizing his exhaustive training regime. I mean, he's a very fit guy. He does a lot of sport. Uh, but in 2010, the second year of this deal, his training regime hadn't changed at all. There was no news. There was nothing that was going to get them PR attention. They, there was not much of a story there and they were paying him a lot of money. So their challenge was, how could they make him interesting? How could they make his training interesting? And there are 
three parts to the problem that is Lewis. Uh, the first is, is the contractual restrictions. There were so many things we could not talk about. We couldn't talk about Formula One. Even though he's completely surrounded by it, even though it is like what he does with his entire life, Reebok had no deal with McLaren, his racing team. They only had to deal with Lewis as an individual. So they couldn't show him in a car, couldn't show him near a car, couldn't show him in his leathers or with a helmet on. It was just a deal with Lewis as an individual. Second thing we couldn't mention was his private life, especially not his girlfriend, who is Nicole Schertzinger, who's one of the Pussycat Dolls, one uh, Dancing with the Stars, I think, in the States. Uh, so, so the two things he's most famous for we just couldn't talk about at all, we couldn't mention. Nor could we link him to anything scandalous or, or risque to grab headlines because his, his public image is extremely valuable and there are other sponsors to think about. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a walking billboard. You look, at his, look at his leathers there. There are so many sponsors there. Who would, the, the risk of us damaging his reputation by somebody getting the wrong end of the stick and thinking that you know, whatever fictional story we were telling was real... You know, the, the, the financial fallout could have been huge. So we couldn't risk damaging his public image at all. Then there's the audience. Uh, Formula One is a pretty global sport, except for the USA. Nobody gives a shit in the USA. Uh, so there are pockets of support in very disparate countries, I mean, really widely distributed, widely differing countries like Malaysia and Egypt and India, very kind of different cultures. They're very hard to communicate with all at once. Especially when, again, we had no media budget at all. We had no advertising space, no, no bought space, no, no tie-in with a broadcaster, no, no publicity deal like that. And the third problem, for their money, which is millions of dollars, Reebok get one six-hour day with Lewis a year. Plus six one-hour slots throughout the season, various various points, and that's to do everything. That's to do photo shoots for catalogues and posters and product launches in store. Um, there are a lot of demands on his time, and you know, he, and he's always on the move. He he's travels a lot, and he's quite hard to pin down. So, with all those in mind, this was our solution. Uh, we created a parallel fictional life that would give Lewis new reasons to train, something that make the training itself more varied and interesting. And it would avoid all of those no-go areas because we were talking about a fictional version of his life. It would cover the world and it would make the most of Lewis's limited time. Uh, basically, we turned him into an action hero in, in cinematic style. Uh, in a nutshell, the story was that Lewis, in between Formula One races, was recovering stolen works of art from around the world. Naturally. Um, and the, the cues that we were taking were from the Bourne identity, like the kind of modern, slightly gritty edge of that, but with the, the flair of Thomas Crown and, of course, the physical dedication and training of Rocky, which we wanted in there as well. Um, so how do, how do people play a game like this? Uh, it's worth saying the whole thing was free to take part in. It was sponsored, so there was nothing, uh, nothing that the players needed to pay for and they worked collectively. It was a collaborative game. So if one person made a breakthrough, then everybody benefited, the whole story moved forward. Um, it was an eight-month Formula One season, and Lewis pulled off five heists in that time. The first one in March, 
final one in November. So each heist took about six weeks from, if you like, from theft to recovery. Uh, and there was a couple of weeks break in between each, each episode. So to help Lewis, the players had to overcome a mixture of challenges and puzzles online and in the real world. The structure, roughly, for all of them was something like this. Anna would, would announce that something's been nicked uh, using her blog on secretlewis.com. Uh, well, there you can see that's, that's Thierry Henry, who is a French footballer. I don't know how, how widely known he's known in this uh, hemisphere. Uh, he did a little cameo for us, uh, telling Lewis about a sculpture that had been stolen from him. Uh, then the detective work begins and this part this sort of middle section was really varied and this is where we had all kinds of challenges marshalled by Anna Uh, so for example we've got an online photo fit game there where you had to recreate the face of a suspect in this little photo fit Uh, that rose and the guitar represents a music challenge where we ask the players to compose a love song Uh, as a favour to a character who would then give us the blueprints to the, to the target's apartment. And there were dozens of little mini-games like that during the adventure, all completely different, all demanding different skills from, from these collaborative group of players. And once they had an idea of what the heist was and how they were going to try and do it, Joe would design a training programme for the specific heist and put up an exercise video for Lewis and the players if they wanted to join in because each heist involved a different physical obstacle that he needed to train to overcome. So that might be like something really high he needed to jump over or some vicious attack dogs that were going to be pretty quick so he had to work on his sprint speed. And Anna would create a heist simulator game based on the target location, based on blueprints, floor plans, whatever they could get, uh, which meant that they, they could model each heist and let the players play through it as Anna in this little 3D game. Finding the smartest route for Lewis to take, it was all timed so you could figure out what was the quickest way that he could get through and, and conduct the heist. There was also a version of a, well, there was a version of a heist sim online on secretlewis.com, but we also made one for Java phones, kind of really basic non-smart phones uh, which actually did really well, they got us, got us a lot of extra players um, I mean they, they were very accessible, particularly in India where those phones are very popular and we gained tens of thousands of players just from those really basic mini games, this sort of 2D version of that relatively sophisticated heist sim game uh, and just as a kind of side note, this game finished about a year ago People are still downloading those games. Still another 50,000-odd people have been playing those games without the support of, of this wider adventure. Yeah, sometimes the detective work in the middle of each sort of heist investigation meant getting people out of their homes and looking for clues or characters in their, in their cities. So we ran a dozen events like this in in London, Birmingham, Paris, Milan, Kuala Lumpur, Barcelona, Dubai, Cairo, Beirut, Bangalore, Mumbai, and New Delhi. And this is where Reebok could kind of give away trainers and kit and even even uh, had a draw for the chance to meet Lewis. And all of this was being done in nine languages simultaneously. Uh, English, French, Italian, German, Spanish, Turkish, Japanese, Mandarin, and Korean. Uh, Websites, video, games, all localised. 
but that's what got us those hard to reach audiences in those that broad range of countries so we did manage to get that full six hour day with Lewis in Geneva uh, two months into pre-production while we were still basically trying to figure out what the story was uh, to shoot all the video and photos that we'd use for the whole game but we also got an unexpected hour with him in Barcelona in the summer and about five minutes of his time in Abu Dhabi which came in very handy but that was a lot um, because, well, because the bulk of the story was told through websites and Twitter and emails, um, we could create the illusion that Lewis was talking to the players a lot more than he really was, because in reality, uh, it was some skinny, geeky guy throwing his voice. Because uh, that's, that's what a storyteller does in, in a story like this. There's a lot of writing text in character, but it's a, a very... It was a very visual and visceral uh, cinematic story, and words sometimes weren't the best way to get that sense across. So I could write pages of text about what a heist was like, but ultimately it wouldn't have the same impact as, as a really well-edited bit of cinema. So normally I don't like using video in presentations, but I'm going to show you a quick one because it's the only way to give you an idea of the, the cinematic style and, and the story that we wanted to tell. At the end of each episode, once, they'd, once the players had planned how this heist was going to run and done all the detective work, Lewis would conduct the heist as they planned it, occasionally with the odd mishap along the way. And Anna, the day of the heist, would, would post a video of it online, and that was the climax of each sort of six-week episode. Those heist videos are a couple of minutes long, and each one is a little mini-movie in itself, but... Uh, just to give you an idea I'm just going to show the, the one minute trailer that we cut together for the start of the game uh, which should, I hope give you a sense of how it all worked I'm just going to turn up the volume that's, that's pretty loud Okay. So, yeah, that's, that's the positive side. Glossy action sequences and happy clients and big audiences and then big rounds of applause for everyone. Uh, but I know you want the dirt, so, so here it comes. Um, like I said, some of the bad decisions in these projects were mine, and I'm happy to talk about those. Some of them were other people's, and so that means sometimes I'm going to be talking about them, and I don't want it to sound like I'm criticising or slagging people off. Um, Genuinely, in most of these cases, I do blame myself. I should have known better. I shouldn't have let someone take control of a decision 
or I should have fought harder to get things right. Because producing something like this, you're the guardian of the story, and if it goes wrong, you know, it's, you know, it was down to me. So, where to start? Um, <laughs> I have to be very careful here. Um, on, on Secret Lewis, uh, we wanted to do a prize draw for everyone who took part, where they could win the chance to have a training day with Lewis. We'd fly them out to wherever he was, and uh, they'd get to meet and greet and talk to him. So we consulted a, an expert games lawyer, specialist in games in the UK, and paid him a fair fee to draw up the terms and conditions for this draw. I would cover the world. And basically he gave us some pretty duff advice. Um, he, he came up with a pretty, pretty short two-page document that kind of was a catch-all uh, terms and conditions for anybody around the world. But it turns out there are some really serious and peculiar international restrictions on prize draws. In Spain, for example, uh, if you run a prize draw that includes Spain, you have to guarantee that somebody Spanish is going to win. Which isn't great when you're running a prize draw with one prize in it. Um, in France, you have to register a prize draw with the government a couple of weeks before you start advertising it, which was a bit of a pain for us as well. Um, we only discovered this when we went to a specialist kind of prize draw uh, company who were going to do the, the fulfillment as well. So we were thinking of giving away trainers and they were going to handle you know, figuring out what size people needed and then delivering them out. The legal costs of getting the terms and conditions right for them and the fulfillment would have been over $200,000. Just to give away some free stuff, it would have cost us over $200,000. So we, we scrapped the idea of doing a prize draw and prizes, which, you know, was a shame. On Z, it was a bit easier because there were no real prizes. Uh, we did give away some digital T-shirts for the... For, people's avatars and homes in home but that was that's pretty easy to distribute and because it's it's free uh, there was never going to be any real argument um, but the lawyers were also a bit of a problem in Z and uh, there are a couple of instances where I, where I think I should have uh, fought harder uh, to change the lawyer's mind uh, uh, yeah, this is, this is probably such a bad idea. You know, talking, bad-mouthing lawyers in public is probably just the most suicidal thing you can do. Um, so everybody's remaining nameless in this. Uh, we ran a couple of live events in New York and L.A. where uh, we were basically getting players to pretend that they were going for a job interview. and uh, We would pick them up in a limo and essentially they would be interviewed in the back of this limo as it drove, drove around the streets of New York or Los Angeles and they would be grilled by uh, somebody who is from a fictional company. And, you know, and then they get dropped off while they got picked up. It was a little immersive thing that we were doing for about two dozen players. But to get people to sign up for this, to get people to go through this sort of fictional job application process online in the first place... Uh, the lawyers insisted that we had to state in the terms and conditions exactly what was going to happen to them. They had to say that they were going to get picked up in the limo, that, 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 that limo ride would have a cash equivalent value of $80, and that uh, you know, they, were, they were not going to come to any harm, and that, it, that basically it's just a, a whole list of spoilers. And even when they were at the event, when they turned up, we needed somebody there, we needed a... Um, 
a public notary with a clipboard to, to get them to sign a waiver and for them to witness them signing that waiver, saying that this is all part of a promotion run by Sony involving in Dreams, uh, who are a games company in the UK. And, and then we were expecting them to go from signing that to stepping into this fictional story world where they would immerse themselves in this interactive experience. Um, it was quite a barrier. And that really was the lawyers spoiling the fun. Um, Incidentally, some, a guy I will name, because this is a positive mention, Jack Buser, who's a, an American guy, he's basically head of home in Sony. Sony, which is an incredibly bureaucratic organization, uh, just said to me, ask for forgiveness, not for permission, which is something I should have taken to heart. I played by the rules a little bit too much. I got permission before doing things a little bit too much. It seems like even within an organization like that, Sometimes you just have to do it. And uh, as long as the risks are low and there's not any real harm likely to happen, you can probably get away with it again. When I said that we did the PR for Z, that's, that's a slight exaggeration. Uh, Sony, Sony has a, a small internal PR department, but they are, they are small but powerful. They have a really good blog for home, which has... 175,000 readers, including most of the game's press. Uh, we wrote and distributed... We, you know, we wrote a press release, they put it on their blog, and it got picked up everywhere. So they didn't need a PR agency. That was great. Uh, and I only kind of realised how great that was afterwards. Okay. Uh, I will skip through this as fast as I can then. Um, Sign off, the sign-off process with, with Lewis Hamilton was, was agonising. We had to get sign-off from MNC Saatchi, McLaren, Reebok Global PR, Reebok Global Legal, Lewis's management, uh, maybe Reebok local offices. Um, it was a slow process, which meant that the whole game became broadcast, not interactive. We couldn't have a conversation at that speed. Um, McLaren also insisted on everything carrying a Reebok logo. Everything was Reebok branded. His Twitter feed had Reebok as his, uh, as his little avatar. Uh, Lewis could only wear Reebok clothing because of other potential sponsors you know, getting their backs up. So we couldn't put him in a dinner jacket because he's sponsored by Hugo Boss as well and they'd want to know whose jacket that was. Um, so the sign-off process was, was tortured and uh, we kind of bypassed that a little bit with Z because we, we created a a news ticker, like in sort of uh, Times Square, that we could control directly from our game studio and didn't go through Sony. So we could secretly kind of communicate messages to the players very quickly, I mean, within seconds. Uh, and also the, uh, the community management system with Sony was particularly good, actually. Those, those online message boards were very actively moderated. They already had quite a lot of traffic. And it meant that if we wanted to get a message out to all the players, or if we wanted to kind of uh, tease them about new stuff that was coming up, we could just talk to the moderators, or the, actually the one chief moderator in, based in London, and he would spread the word in those languages to communities that were already bought in. And that was great. They, they had a place where they could talk to each other. They had a, a place where they could easily find the French-speaking players. Even if they weren't in that community, they knew where they were. We didn't really have that with Lewis. We were scrabbling around trying to find existing 
forums and communities who might be interested in hosting the conversation around this game. Nine of those in different languages, but of course they couldn't be Formula One websites. They couldn't be Lewis Hamilton fan sites, but they still had to be somewhere that might have been interested in talking about this game. So it was, uh, it was pretty hard to find communities that could, uh, that could support that. And you need a critical mass of people in a forum to, to make it feel vibrant and to have a really kind of uh, lively community. Uh, otherwise, you end up with, with empty room syndrome, that thing, you know, when you walk past a restaurant and there's nobody eating in there, you, you, you don't go in. Um, technology, there are so many, so many problems with technology. Everybody has these problems. Uh, we'd use something like Flash, for example. Uh, it would have worked automatically. There wouldn't have been that barrier. More people would have played. Similar problem with the video platform that Reebok wanted us to use and insisted that we did use, which is called Brightcove. Uh, rather than putting videos on YouTube, which we also ended up doing, uh, Brightcove is a Flash-based video player, which means it doesn't work on a lot of mobile devices. Uh, there's a lot less uh, opportunity for virality. It doesn't work in China. Um, which, uh, again, was, was a, a technological limitation for us. And the Java mobile stuff was, was fantastic. The, the process was agonizing, but we did do well out of it. Uh, and then the, sort of the follow-up. SecretLewis.com, a year on, is no longer there. Uh, the URL registration lapsed. Uh, Rebot weren't paying for it anymore. Nobody, nobody renewed it. Uh, there are dormant Twitter accounts and Facebook event pages and things that are just sitting there and can't be used. Uh, we didn't get to keep the email addresses or audience data because uh, the client was paying for that. I don't think they're doing anything with it. We can't touch it. These are all kind of missed opportunities for keeping the conversation going. So, hopefully I don't sound like some bitter ranting guy getting stuff off his chest or committing career suicide, which, which may be true. Uh, but there is a point to all of this. Uh, every, every niggle and every, every mistake that I've talked about here stops that process of reaching out to an audience, of making your story feel like a world that involves them. The red tape over the prize draws stopped us attracting a larger audience with big shiny prizes and getting them hooked. The spoilers in those terms and conditions for the limo event broke that suspension of disbelief and destroyed any element of surprise. Uh, the PR problems, PR is probably going to be a very important part of how you market your game if you've not got a big advertising budget. Persuading people to move from one platform to another, to read a magazine and then type in your URL or to click on a link in a, in a blog is very tough and you need to make sure that the message that they're getting in this press release or this magazine or whatever they're, they're reading is in the right tone of voice and fits with your story. And basically, you do need to take control of it. You don't want it to be in someone else's hands. It's one of your, one of your storytelling tools. The sign-off process, it took two weeks to get for me to write something, for it to get cleared, and to be able to go online with the, with the Sony. No, sorry, it was Reebok. That's, that's not a human conversation. That is not interaction. Uh, do, if you're in a process where you have a client or anyone who needs to sign stuff off before it can go live, 
make that process as short as possible. Before you begin, make sure that you have a process that's going to be really quick. You have someone senior enough to sign stuff off, but they're not going to be so senior that they're going to be in board meetings all day and you can't get hold of them. Find a way to either make that system work or ways to kind of bypass that system and ask for forgiveness, not for permission, and don't tell anyone I told you that. Um, community management. You need to give people a place to talk to each other if you're doing any kind of collaborative game. Uh, you need their conversations to keep the community alive. You can't just keep shouting into a room and hoping that they'll talk. Um, and it's really difficult if you're managing multiple languages. Um, the European languages in, in, in Zed spoke to each other a bit because they had shared languages. With Lewis, I don't think there was a single example of anybody interacting with the Turkish community who wasn't Turkish. Turkish and Mandarin, you know, there's, there's no crossover in language. Nobody was going to be forming connections that way, especially when there was no focused set of forums where you knew where you could find those, those people. Technology is a big one. Uh, choosing the right platforms for your audience uh, is, is absolutely essential. So maybe we should have used Flash instead of Unity. Uh, don't put videos on a proprietary platform and then expect people to just find them, especially if they're blocked by a national firewall. Um, be very glad you will never have to deal with Internet Explorer 6. Um, and basic media can be really, really effective. The Java mobile phone game we got, it's like 100,000 downloads at extremely low cost. It's running itself now. That medium was not glossy and was not cool, but it was absolutely best suited for the job. And sometimes that's how, that's how you have to think. So all of this is about making the effort to reach your audience where they live. Don't make them jump through legal hoops. Don't make them download software that they're not comfortable with. Uh, don't make your work difficult to follow. Go to them and where they are and be open and communicative. Bearing in mind how many of those rules I've broken, it's amazing I still have a job. <laughs> Leading multi-platform storytelling. Welcome to another Story Labs podcast. For more info, go to storylabs.us.